Welcome to On Balance. I'm your host, Dr. Rod Berger. I'll be your guide as we explore the stories of today with the personalities impacting tomorrow. Welcome to On Balance. Welcome to another edition of On Balance. I'm your host, Dr. Rod Berger. This is a Strategist client profile. I'm excited to have this conversation with Keith Ulrich. He's the CEO at Learning.com. And Keith, let's just start with that. Now, you, you've you've been around the block. We were talking about that. You've been CEO of different companies, but boy, you fall into uh, Learning.com, a fantastic URL. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> let's just. I know there are a lot of topics we're going to get into, but let's just talk a little bit about about the name uh, and the impact or the benefit that that has in a space that is so big and expansive, not just here in the U.S. but worldwide. Yeah. Yeah, to be to be honest, um, the name is the the company's the company was originally founded uh, before I joined. The company was originally founded as the Learning Internet, uh, and then somewhere along the way, uh, the the founder bought the name Learning.com from a couple in I think Michigan, and they're still shareholders of the company. So um, <laughs> so uh, that's how we landed with the name, and it's and it's a fantastic name, as you say. Um, Although we do get a lot of traffic that comes to the website that is, you know, that, that bounces out pretty quickly because you, you can find anything there, right? You can find anything <laughs> at a website called learning.com. So we specialize in digital skills education. Um, and right now we specialize on really K through 12 kids. Um, but we think we're, we have some extension things that we're looking to do to really become a leader in digital skills education for life. And that will start to more that will start to better uh, fulfill the uh, brand presence of a name like Learning.com. Let's start there and let's expand on the digital skills component. Is there a relationship to as we sort of define this for the audience? <clears throat> is there a relationship to career and technical education and all the funding that we're seeing in that space? Where does the digital skill sort of that area or that area of focus land when it comes to CTE? And are those two separate things or are we seeing them migrate together in some form or fashion? Uh, I'd probably say both. They're two separate things, but they are definitely migrating together. Um, and you can see place, we see a lot of intersection in, in and an increasing amount of intersection in, um, in middle school now. It used to be that a lot of CTE funding was targeted at high school. We've mostly been a K through eight company through our history, although we're just starting to do some things in high school in the last couple of years. Uh, but even now you're seeing CTE funding moving down into middle school grades, uh, and lots of intersection now. Really what's happening is the whole category of CTE is just getting more and more attention, whether it's the additional funding or just a broadened awareness of the intersection between career education and careers, right? And the and 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 K through 12 school systems and government systems be outside of K through 12 are putting more and more attention on that intersection between uh, education and careers. All kinds of things that get wrapped up into that credentialing opportunities, uh, career pathways that are starting you're starting to see in, in high school programs, um, and 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 additional focus on digital skills and digital equity, which is another. Another big initiative for us, which isn't necessarily about careers, but it's definitely um, it's definitely an important issue for the country. Yeah, and I want to get to that in a minute, but let's sure. let's hone in on that yeah. digital skills piece. Yeah, can you speak to the awareness? Because I think it's one thing for the private sector to identify where maybe the funding opportunities are, or where we're starting to see things you know sort of bubble up even in retail or consumer behaviors. But it's another thing for maybe the schools or the districts or the people that would be implementing 
or integrating in these new programs or opportunities. Talk a little bit about sort of the understanding, the awareness of digital skills and how that has evolved over the last so many years to where we are, I would hope, Keith, having better conversations, deeper conversations about what we can and cannot do and what we need to do to get better. Yeah, so um, I joined Learning.com nine years ago. And when I first joined the company, I would talk to superintendents at gatherings around the country and say, we help teach kids technology skills. And they would look at me like I had blue hair. Right? Like <laughs> Kids know more about technology than I do as a superintendent. Why do I need to teach them anything about technology? And we ran into that a lot in the, in the marketplace X number of years ago. And it slowly has started to change. And there's really been two things that have happened over the last several years that have really driven more awareness in among professional educators about the need to teach kids digital skills. The first was the move to online assessments. Right. All this, the park and the SBAC and all the assessment, all the state assessments moved online. And when that happened, scores around the country plummeted. And it's not like kids got less smart in math and language arts. It's just that the move to the online testing environment really impeded kids ability to show what they know. Right. And so and that went, and that happened all over the country. The test scores in Ohio on the first year of online testing were so bad they didn't release them in the public. They didn't release the test scores to the public because they were so low. So that that created a big red flag for districts to say, okay, we've got to fix this problem and make sure our kids have the the skills to um, to properly take take these online assessments. And even today, there are some states that are still making that transition. Texas is just starting now to make the transition to online testing. So that was one one impact that really raised the visibility of the need for digital skills uh, a few years ago. And then more recently, of course, the pandemic, which just you know the the mad the mad rush all across the country to remote learning really emphasized the notion that kids didn't have the digital skills they need. First, districts would rush to put devices in the hands of every student. Very successful. That was the easiest part to solve. And then, and then because it just takes money, right? And there was plenty of money coming Isn't in. Isn't that the irony? 10, 15 yeah. years ago, that was the, the issue on the table. Right. <laughs> exactly right. Yeah. So that was the easiest part to solve. The next part was solving the access to broadband. And you saw districts doing all kinds of creative stuff. They were, you know, putting broad, hot, uh, hot, hot spots in the parking lot or putting hot spots on buses and driving, driving around. Driving them around, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And then even with those, you still saw challenges uh, for kids to be able to understand how to use the learning environments. And so we've seen a, tra- a dramatic increase in the attention being paid to re- really the shift, the digital divide has shifted now. To, to not just focus on devices and broadband, but now to take that third leg of the stool, which is you got to make sure kids or any citizen knows how to use the technology when we put it in front of them. And what about identifying what should be put in front of them? And this, to me, will lead up to the digital equity piece, yeah. right? Because we're making a lot – the industry is making a lot of assumptions, and I'm wondering if that's dangerous <laughs> in that, you know – how are we at, as districts able to understand even what we should be putting in front of? I mean, yeah. you look at all the data on on the money spent on application digital apps that go unused throughout districts across the country, and it's exactly. astronomical. I don't think the general public has a real understanding for the gravity of the spend and the impact on everything from resource allocation and teacher. I mean, there's it, sort of the list goes yeah. on and on and on. Yeah, yeah, you're you're yes, that's a really interesting a really interesting challenge. Um, and, and just to touch on that for a moment, the, you know, one of the things that's happened now, as you've been in education a long time, I have too, and, and there was a long time when it was still heavily textbook focused. 
And what's happened now as districts have moved more and more and more of their instruction to digital content and digital instructional materials, districts have started to learn we can actually test the efficacy. We can actually measure the efficacy of the programs that we're putting in front of kids. You couldn't really do that with a textbook, right? Because you don't, you know, you can, you can go through a standards alignment, you go through a, a, an adoption process, but you don't know if the kid's actually using the textbook, right? We just don't have any idea. Now, if you put digital instructional materials in front of a student, the di- every district can look and see, okay, the kids that use this program got these kind of scores. The kids that didn't use the program got these kind of scores. And you can, and districts are starting to realize they can actually get more data and evidence of efficacy when they spend money, as you say, on these programs that don't get used. And if they do get used, they're not moving the needle on performance. So that I think is actually a really positive shift that's coming out of, um, you know, the move to digital instructional materials, right? It's, do you, it's, do you think that that shift, do you think that shift, Keith, then impacts our ability collectively to understand the power and the implications of digital equity beyond the device? Yes, I think it will actually. Um, and you know, we, we've been doing this for a long time. Uh, in general, this, this one specific thing, mostly K through eight kids and digital skills. And we have lots of data that will show districts, um, you know, how kids perform on digital skills before they use learning.com, after they use learning.com. We have data that shows how kids perform their usage of learning.com, how it, um, uh, correlates to improvements on these statewide online assessments. There's lots of data that we can provide around digital skills. Um, the other thing is, uh, you know, you, you mentioned a, a few minutes ago the, top, the notion of how do we know what's, what we should be teaching kids uh, in terms of digital skills. And you, I know you know the organization, ISTE, you've, you've uh, done some work for them before and spoken at co- conferences there. Um, you know, they have a set of standards, right? They have a K through 12 set of standards that specifies, and it's, I think it's in its third iteration now, that specifies what each kid at each grade level, what digital skills kids should, kids should be able to demonstrate. And, um, and so you, there's a, you know, that gets refined all the time. That set of standards gets refined all the time. There's also the CSTA, the Computer Science Teachers Association, which recently, um, revised their, uh, K through 12 standards for what kids should be learning around computer science at each grade level. And the interesting thing is, if you look at the earliest grade levels, now, now districts are saying, we're going to teach computer science to every kid in every school at every grade level. Now, nobody's a re- and nobody really for years knew how to do it. The CSTA is starting to say, here are what we should be teaching in those earliest grade levels. It's really digital skills, foundational digital skills. You're not necessarily have to teaching you know, we're not necessarily teaching coding at those earliest grade levels. You start to introduce the concepts, but it's really about teaching the digital skills foundation so the kids aren't afraid of the technology when they grow up and start interacting with it more. Well, let's address something that you recently wrote um, w- within the last couple of weeks. You, you wrote uh, a post, Why We Must Close the Digital Divide. Can you talk a little bit, of, because the numbers are staggering, I think yeah. even for people that are in the business of education, uh, when we think about what that really is, because I... I wonder, Keith, if it's, boy, if we really dive into these numbers, you start to second guess kind of what we're doing, how we're doing it. Yeah. Are we really making inroads or are we just comfortable in our yeah. respective seats? Right. Yep. I think that's right. Uh, you know, and I didn't mention this in that post, but, um, but a few years ago now, PISA, the, the testing, the international testing agency that does testing across countries, they, for the first time, they, they did a test across countries of problem-solving ability using technology, 
And they were testing the workforce across across 19 different developed nations. And, and it's the first time they'd done it. And in that test, the U.S., there was tested 19 nations and the U.S. scored 19th. Dead last in the, in the, in this sample size of developed nations. I think we were close behind Romania or something like that. And, and, and that data is, and, and I'm shocked that we didn't actually pay more attention to that data. It didn't get more attention than, than it did. You know, we have a perception of, I think as a society, we have a perception of ourselves as being technology leaders. And in many ways, that's well justified. But, but this data, this international data says, well, we're not maybe as good as we think we are. Right. And, and, and that problem, I think, just gets worse and worse. That was a few years ago. And you start to see advances in technology and in other places around the world. And you can I mean, start to think as an example, Keith, that made me think, you know, even in the AI world, yeah, the, the investment that China is putting out there for AI development and growth dwarfs us. I mean, we're not yeah. even in the same stratosphere. That's right. Um, you know, we talk about computer chip shortages and where, why we can't produce them here. I mean, this is. Yeah. To your point, I don't know why it's not a bigger headline that we are ranking 19th out of 19. Right. right. It's, it's it's really you can think of it as a national security issue. Right. It becomes digital skills and digital preparation of our workforce becomes a national security issue, has become a national security issue. We don't quite get enough attention on that, I think. And and so if you take that context and then think about, well, how do we tackle those things? You, you know, we tell this story when we're out working with state governments. For example, we have a number of deals where we work with state governments to provide our programs. And you say, okay, at the if you're going to tackle a problem that's as big as this, you got to start with the earliest kids. You got to start with earlier earliest kids and and help them so that they are prepared to tackle technology as a focus in their lives going forward. And you need to tackle the existing workforce as well. Um, but yeah, the, some of the things, you know, the problem that we are are in today. One out of three, uh, the National National um, Skills Foundation did a survey. One out of three workers does lacks foundational digital skills in the workplace today in the U.S. Um, and the problem gets worse. There was um, the World Economic Forum did a study, uh, or a, I guess a study and a and a projection saying that over the next over five year period, I think we might be a year into it now. 85 million low-skilled jobs would be lost worldwide. 85 million low-skilled jobs would be lost worldwide. These are things like data entry clerks and accounting clerks and those kinds of things um, get lost to, as you just said, artificial intelligence and automation. Now, the good news is their projection is also that 97 million jobs get created, but those jobs are in things like data analytics and um Digital marketing and, uh, you know, and automation and AI and those kinds of things, which are completely different skill sets than we're teaching our workers today. Let, let's pivot a little bit here and talk about the marketplace. We have so many providers now, uh, right? I'm sure they're, you know, these are the things that potentially keep you up at night and, and your peers in this space. If you are a consumer, and, and really, I'll let you identify who that consumer is, whether that's a mom or a dad or a teacher or a buyer at the state level. What is the best way or what's the best method of understanding quality and, and wrapping our arms around um, not just a one off? Right. I mean, I think that's always the fear. You know, one group might have a fantastic offering in one area, but we're nervous about the others. And so maybe we don't sort of, you know, engage in that dance with that provider. 
how do you discern quality uh, over quantity? Because I think in the yeah. rush with the pandemic, quantity, right? We had to have yes. as many offerings as possible to stop the leaky dam. And now we're saying, yeah, but wait a minute, hold on. <laughs> maybe yeah. it was too much and maybe we need to kind of, you know, pare back a little bit. So how do you uh, look at quality in this space? Yeah, I think that's a, that it's a great point. Um, and there are many examples um, that you could, that you could point to that are more about quality than, uh, more, I'm sorry, more about quantity than quality. Absolutely. Um, but you know, so I think if, if you're starting from, you know, so we don't work with parents, we don't work with consumers. That's just, that's learning.com's current positioning. But, but our customers are, uh, district administrators or state government administrators. And from that perspective, you know, it goes back to the conversation we were having a moment ago. It starts with efficacy. And, um, you know, and, and what is the level of data that you can bring to us that shows us that this program works for kids? So it starts with that. And as, and as we said, as I said a moment ago, there are, because we've now moved to digital instructional materials, there are more and more and more ways for districts. Districts are expecting more of that data and there are more ways that you can get that data. So that's actually, a, that's actually, I think, a great development for the industry. So that's a place where it starts. And then I think, you know, everything in, in, Education sales, and maybe this is the same way in selling anything to anybody, but it start there's, you know, reference accounts. You know, you've got, if you build up a big network of satisfied customers, educators like to hear from other educators. Oh yeah, this program works great for us and word of mouth and that kind of thing, uh, which is very old school, but, uh, but, but it still exists. Sometimes uh, we need old school, don't we? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's right. But I think, it, you know, ultimately we have it. It's easier today to demonstrate quality and efficacy of your digital program than it's ever been. So that's great news. So whether we're working directly with a parent or by proxy, right, in in what you're describing in that regard, let's talk about the market uh, writ large. So is it a benefit that we have some massive players in the space that are coming into the U.S. market or already here in the U.S. market that are – I mean, they are expanding what feels like every third day with incredible acquisitions Right. that if I'm a teacher or a parent or I'm a buyer at the state level, do I just sort of sit back because it's out of my control? And is that a good thing? Or how should we sort of understand the power schools, the bijous of the world, like all these groups that are started very quickly yeah. to, you know, um, pull together and acquire market share in, in yeah. ways and, and methods and time periods that are just collapsing. Yeah, it's crazy. Baijus is raising hundreds of billions of dollars every quarter, it seems. And they're, and they, and they're very active in the U.S. market right now. They're, they've done, I think, three acquisitions in the last 18 months. And I know they're looking for more. And, and, um, you know, and, and I think, I think so from the perspective. So just on that perspective of us saying, um, you know, we here in the U.S., in the U.S. education system, how do we feel about, you know, sort of country uh, companies from other places around the planet coming in. I think it's, and, and by the way, learning.com um, until recently was owned by a company out of India. Our majority owners was a company out of India. They're not involved in the company anymore, but until recently they were joined, we were owned by a company out of India. And our experience was they thought initially when they bought into the company, which happened before I joined uh, as CEO, they, um, they thought that we would be a distribution vehicle for their content into the U S and I've been doing this for a while and I spent some time with their content development teams and I looked at the product and I just said, look guys, it's not, your stuff is working very well in India for your, you know, and this, and this was years ago, this was a decade ago. And so it works very well for what you're doing in India, but it won't, it's, it's not, it's not high enough quality 
for what we're doing here. And, and, and that sort of investment thesis for them went away. Now, the other guys that are coming in from other places around the country now or around the world now, I mean, you know, the, 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 the level of content, the, the production qualities and everything have all changed and improved since that time. I haven't seen any of the content that Byju's has, but I think if you're sitting in the desk in the chair of a education administrator, I think it, you know, it doesn't really matter where it came from. It matters how, how good is it for your, how well is it going to do for your kids? And you can start with talking about efficacy. You can start with talking about quality of design. And there are plenty of standards around not just what to teach, but how well to teach it when you get into a digital instructional format. Lots of standards that you can look at for what constitutes engaging and effective and effective quality. And those things, you know, if, if someone is meeting those standards from somewhere, it does, I don't know that it matters so much where it comes from. Let's put a wrapper on this. Uh, Keith, give me, give me your outlook for 2022 ed tech. Kind of where are we? Where are we going? And what should we be looking forward to? I mean, we've got everything from the Oculus and the metaverse and people starting to extrapolate what that might look like. And my hunch is it's going to be here sooner than we think, maybe because of the pandemic and just, you know, it's created a different dialogue to take place. But, and that doesn't have to be where you, you address it. But what is your outlook for 2022 yeah. ed tech? I think it's, I think about, well, a number of things, but probably two that come to mind. I think the, you know, what we went through with the pandemic uh, and the changes that have been made to the education system with remote learning, the, the, you know, the drive to remote learning, you know, we districts all over the country now went to one to one with device ratios. Um, that wasn't the case previously. Almost every district has LMS penetration now that's affecting that's in, in place for every student in every school. That wasn't in place before the pandemic. And everybody's adopting digital content. That was all of those things were slowly growing before the pandemic, but the pandemic just accelerated all of those trends. And so now you have an environment, even as kids are starting to come back and learn in the classroom again, all of those things don't go away. Devices don't go away. Broadband doesn't go away. Digital content doesn't go away. And so now you're seeing more and more opportunities for districts that, you know, they've had to learn on the fly, but there are great opportunities for them to um, to start doing more and more with digital learning and digital learning. I've been doing it for a long time now and, and have always felt like the potential was there to move towards personalized learning where you're, you know, you're personalizing learning for kids based on their skills, their interests, their prior knowledge. You can, you know, move to adaptive learning models, um, more engaging content, which helps to keep more engaging and interactive content, which helps to drive student engagement levels. All of those things feel like they're really, positive developments uh, going going forward for the education system. So I think that's one thing we'll continue to see that develop uh, even as even as kids are back in school, we'll continue to see online learning move forward. And then, you know, digital equity we've talked about, I think that continues to be a focus point around the country, both inside of schools and in the broader society. Uh, that continues to get a lot of attention. Um, and then, you know, and then the, the very first topic you touched on, the, the uh, credentialing, the, the, the sort of merging together of CTE, I think that continues to be something that gets a lot of attention in 2022. We see more and more districts talking about putting in career pathways programs in high school and credentialing programs. I think that is another growth area for the, for the year. 
Well, I think you have an incredibly thoughtful voice in this space. I would encourage people to go to learning.com and check out Keith's blog. He, he he takes the time to write really thoughtful pieces that go beyond just being a CEO of a company, because I think we've all seen that kind of content, but that's not Keith at all. He's got a very thoughtful voice and one that uh, integrates in a lot of data that makes you think. Um, and uh, I'll speak selfishly for myself, that, that I do appreciate. We want to thank Keith Ulrich. He's a CEO of learning.com. And once again, this has been an episode of On Balance and a special profile of a strategist client. I'm your host, Dr. Rod Berger. This concludes another chapter of On Balance. Connect with me via LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. I'm Dr. Rod Berger.